welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Welcome everyone. This is a hybrid event. I'm happy to see folks in the room in Princeton, and we have folks gathered online virtually through the AirMeet platform. My name is Dr. David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity here at Princeton Theological Seminary. And it's my great joy and delight to introduce a good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Melissa Borhaw, who's presenting on this topic, Follow the New Way, How American Refugee Resettlement Policies Changed Hmong Religious Life. Let me introduce Melissa. Melissa Borja is Assistant Professor of American Culture at the University of Michigan, where she is core faculty in the Asian Pacific Islander American Studies. Trained at Harvard, the University of Chicago, and Columbia, she is a historian of migration, religion, race, and politics, and is the author of Follow the New Way, American Refugee Resettlement Policy and Hmong Religious Change, February 23, Harvard University Press. An active public scholar, Dr. Borja advises Princeton's Religion and Forced Migration Initiative, serves as the lead investigator of the Virulent Hate Project, a very important resource and online website, and has contributed research to stop AAPI hate for her research and advocacy on anti-Asian racism during the COVID-19 pandemic. USA Today honored her as one of the 2022 Women of the Year. Let's welcome Dr. Borja. Hello, it is so wonderful to be here on this beautiful day. It's raining, but it's still a beautiful day. Um, thank you, Dr. Chow, for that warm introduction. For all of you joining, either in person or virtually. Hi, Mom. Um, I, I'm just so glad to be able to, to share my research today. This is actually a very special day because it is the first talk I'm really giving publicly about my book in advance of its publication. It comes out on Tuesday. I actually have a physical copy of the book here. I'm holding it in my hands. I've actually been working on this book since I was 19 years old. I'm 40 now. Uh, so I, I, this has had a long birth. Um, but I'm really glad to be able to talk about the work I'm doing um, and, and to be in conversation with all of you. So let me begin with a story. I'm a historian by training. And I always like to tell stories first and foremost. And the story begins with this image. About 25 years ago, the members of the Hmong Christian Church of God in Minneapolis gathered together to celebrate Thanksgiving. Now, they were celebrating Thanksgiving not in November when most of us celebrate Thanksgiving. They were actually having a Thanksgiving celebration in May. And it was in May because they were commemorating the day when they were able to leave Laos and migrate to the United States. And this image is the cover for their order of service. Now, we can look at this image a little bit closely. It tells us a lot. In it, a jet is flying from Laos to the United States. At the top, under crucifix, is the declaration, thanks God for the saving of life. And emblazoned on the jet is a passage from the book of John, I am the way. Now, I see this illustration as telling three separate but related stories. First of all, it tells a providential narrative of how Hmong American Christians have told the story of their resettlement in the United States. 
Looking back on their exodus from Laos, devoutly Christian Hmong refugees routinely have described their journey as the product of divine intervention. It was God, they say, who delivered the Hmong people to the United States where they could enjoy a future of freedom and security. But there are two other stories being told in this image. It shows how Hmong refugees saw Christian churches as responsible for their resettlement in the United States. And it is true, in the United States, refugee resettlement is a public-private church-state effort. And the government relies mightily on religious organizations to implement its refugee program. In this system, Christian churches did indeed provide the way to America for nearly a million Southeast Asian refugees in the last quarter of the 20th century. But I think this image tells a third and just as profound story, a little bit more subtle here. It shows how Hmong refugees saw their refugee migration as intertwined with their religious migration to Christianity. Resettlement in the United States produced profound changes in Hmong religious life, including the decision by many to adopt Christianity. If Hmong Christians believed that they had come to the United States because of God, they also believed that Hmong people came to God because they had come to the United States. Their journeys were thus intertwined. Making a new home in the US involved finding a new spiritual home in Christianity, a religion that Hmong people called Ke Chai Chia, which means literally follow the new way. That is the direct translation for the word Christianity. Today, I will discuss the story that I tell in my book. Um, and this is the story, how Hmong refugee resettlement changed the religious lives of Hmong refugees who came to the US after the secret war in Laos. Now, before I begin, I should ask the question, how significant was this change? When Hmong refugees applied for resettlement in Asia, a small percentage identified as Christian. To give one example, an analysis of case files of refugees resettled by the International Institute of Minnesota found that only 16% of Hmong refugees who arrived in the United States between 1976 and 1996 identified as Christian. The vast majority, about 84%, identified themselves as non-Christian, primarily as animist or ancestor worshipers. And I will already flag these categories are very complicated, happy to discuss in the Q&A. Um, but the point is, this was not a population that was majority Christian. But today, the Christian segment of the Hmong American population has grown, and in some communities, has been estimated to be as high as 70%. To be sure, precise numbers tracking religious affiliation are not available. Frequent religious switching makes tallying adherence difficult. And Hmong people, as I'll explain later, often have a flexible approach to religious identification that makes it very challenging to count religious belonging. But Christianity clearly has a presence in Hmong America. And today there are dozens of Hmong Christian congregations in Minnesota alone. And Christian and Missionary Alliance Church even has its own Hmong district. The presence of Christianity has also been a source of great controversy among Hmong Americans. How this religious change occurred is the topic of my book, which draws on approximately 200 archival collections I studied at 24 different libraries 
and multilingual oral history interviews I conducted with five dozen individuals in the United States and Australia. I'm a historian by training with primary focus on the history of immigration and religion. And I focused my inquiries specifically on American refugee resettlement policies and their religious impacts. In particular, how they facilitated Hmong people's adoption of Christianity at the same time that they disrupted the practice of traditional Hmong rituals. In my book, I argue that the refugee policies of the US government unwittingly transformed the religious lives of Hmong people, despite the fact that the resettlement policies appeared to be religiously neutral and was administered by people who cherished commitments to religious freedom and pluralism. Put simply, the story I tell in my book is one about how the policies of refugee resettlement produce profound religious unsettlement. American refugee policies changed Hmong religious life in two main ways. First, they deprived Hmong people of the human and material resources necessary for traditional rituals. Because Hmong, excuse me, because American policies prioritized younger Hmong people for admission, Hmong refugees were resettled in the United States without elder traditional ritual experts who were left behind in refugee camps in Asia. And because Hmong refugees were dispersed across the country, Hmong refugees were separated from their kin who were necessary for rituals. At the same time, the administrative arrangements of refugee assistance facilitated the decision by many Hmong refugees to adopt Christianity. At the federal, state, and local levels, governments relied heavily on religious institutions to do the work of resettlement. This public-private church-state system meant that Christian voluntary agencies and churches were often the first point of contact for refugees. And because governments delegated much of the work of resettlement to Christian organizations, the refugee resettlement program produced close and often dependent relationships between Christian resettlement workers and non-Christian Hmong refugees. The US resettlement program thus helped to introduce new religious alternatives to Hmong refugees at the same time that they rendered traditional rituals unviable. Refugee policies set these religious changes in motion despite efforts by government and voluntary agencies to make refugee assistance a religiously neutral project. The people who envisioned and administered resettlement policies publicly championed ideals of pluralism, celebrated their commitment to serving refugees across boundaries of creed and culture. And these pluralist intentions by all, um, by all accounts appear to have been sincere. But the ramifications of resettlement policies tell a different and much more complicated story and the religious changes experienced by Hmong refugees exposed the difficulties of putting pluralist ideals into practice. Even if governments and churches committed to respecting religious difference and protecting religious freedom, an ambiguous definition of what is religion made these goals elusive. Uncertainty about what constituted religious activity and Christian resettlement work meant that religion was difficult to delimit and control. And at the same time, uncertainty about whether Hmong beliefs and practices constituted a religion made Hmong traditions difficult to accommodate and protect. 
The changes in Hmong religious life across the past five decades reveal not only the impact of American refugee resettlement policies, but also the religious agency and creativity of Hmong people who were highly responsive to changes in circumstances and often willing to adopt new practices or adjust old ways in order to ensure their spiritual security. While government policies helped introduce Hmong people to Christianity, Hmong people adopted Christianity on their own terms. Conversion was not binary. Many Hmong people continued to follow tradition Hmong, traditional Hmong rituals at the same time that they practiced Christianity, or they switched back and forth between the two over the course of their lifetimes. The religious logic behind Hmong people's decision to become Christian reveals the endurance of their traditional cosmology and religious framework. Christianity, they believed, offered access to rituals and religious entities that facilitated harmonious relations with the spirit world. Put another way, for many people, conversion to Christianity allowed them to acquire new ways of managing old spiritual problems. As Hmong refugees adapted to life in the U.S., so too did they adapt Hmong traditions to an American setting. And over time, they transformed their beliefs, their practices, their institutional forms to align with American laws, um, customs, and culture. Throughout this process, Hmong Americans have chosen to both claim and disclaim religion. At times, they've categorized their tradition as religion, at times as non-religious culture, and sometimes as both. Finding opportunity in the unsettled status of their native beliefs and practices, Hmong Americans have found ways to sustain their traditions and secure rights and respect in ways that reveal creativity and resilience. Now for my talk today, I could talk about any number of themes uh, and there's a lot in my book. When I pulled out my book a couple weeks ago from the box, my mother commented, well, it's, it's a little fat. I thought it'd be a little bit thinner to which my daughter said, Ola, did you just body shame mommy's book? Okay, so there's a lot in this book uh, and I could talk about any number of things, and I'm happy to engage in a lot of themes, especially about the organization and administration of refugee policy in the United States. But today, for this talk, I want to focus on Hmong experiences with Christianity, why they converted to Christianity and what conversion meant to them. Before I begin, just a note, I acknowledge that in many ways Hmong experiences are unique. They were refugees. That is a distinctive experience in American life. They faced an unusually difficult adjustment to American life. Many were agrarian in background. Many had little formal education, English skills, job skills. And unlike many other groups, they didn't have an established community in the United States before they arrived. Their traditions, moreover, didn't conform to American understandings of what is religion. All of these things meant that Hmong people had a very difficult adjustment. At the same time, I think their story is really important because their experience is a useful case. It's brought representative of broader developments. The Christian agencies that resettled Hmong refugees are still at work today. They're still resettling refugees at this time. Hmong resettlement also occurred at a pivotal moment as refugee populations were becoming increasingly non-white and non-Christian. And Christian agencies were forced to confront how they were going to handle this increasingly religiously diverse population. Hmong resettlement, I argue, tested the capability of Christian organizations to operate pluralistically 
and informed how these same organizations handled Asian and African refugees who arrived later in the 80s and 90s and still today. And it is precisely also because of Hmong people's uniqueness that their experience offers useful insight. As a case of extreme difference and often extreme dependency, Hmong resettlement renders in sharp relief the consequences of a delegating work to Christian organizations in an increasingly multi-religious society. So let me give you a little bit of background about Hmong refugees. Hmong are a minority ethnic group from Southeast Asia. During the Laotian Civil War, they fought as American allies against the communists during the Secret War, what's commonly known as the Secret War. It actually wasn't very secret. People knew about it. When the communists came to power in Laos in 1975, the Hmong fled to Thailand, as did other refugees from Laos and Cambodia. Hmong refugees first arrived for resettlement in the United States in, the uni in 1975. Um, a greater number arrived in 1976. Hmong people traditionally practice a set of rituals that combine animism, shamanism, and the worship of ancestral and natural spirits. In Hmong cosmology, two worlds exist, the unseen spirit world and the seen world of human beings, material things, and nature. By guiding human relations between these two worlds, Hmong rituals help facilitate harmonious relations with kin, ancestors, and the natural world. Seasonal and life cycle rituals, as well as regular offerings of food uh, and incense help preserve ancestral ties. And finally, shamanism offers the tools to cope with a wide range of bodily, social, and natural calamities. The shaman plays a principal role in the Hmong spiritual community as the only human who can communicate with the unseen world and bargain for the health of the afflicted. Now in Laos, the Hmong lived in the highlands where rains and rugged territory cut them off from a lot of outsiders. And in these secluded mountain villages, Hmong people had relatively little contact with Christian missionaries in the decades before the war, although there was a strong presence of Christian and Missionary Alliance missionaries um, in the early 20th century. The religious identification of Hmong refugees who later applied for resettlement in the United States reveals this history. As I mentioned earlier, only a small percentage, about 16%, identified as Christian when they applied for resettlement in the U.S. You can really think about the um, the transformation of Hmong religious life beginning not just in the United States, but in Laos with the presence of uh, American troops and missionary, uh, the war in particular through their lives into chaos, including their spiritual lives. Amid the upheaval of war, the mass exodus from Laos and the relocation to refugee camps, Hmong people strive to maintain their traditional rituals. And to a certain degree, they could. Dwight Conkergood, an ethnologist who worked with the International Rescue Committee, described Hmong ritual life in the Thai refugee camps, and he recalled, nearly every morning I was awakened before dawn by the drumming and ecstatic chanting of performing shamans. But there were also significant obstacles to practicing traditional Hmong rituals in the refugee camps. Number one, they didn't have access to animals they needed for rituals or money needed for uh, paying for the services um, or the ceremonies that they needed to conduct. In addition, 
Hmong refugees sometimes worry that if they practice their traditional rituals, it might imperil their chances of being accepted for resettlement in the United States, with which, which many people associated with Christianity. In 1986, for example, the Minnesota Governor State Advisory Council for Refugees traveled to Thailand to examine camp conditions, and they reported that the Hmong in the camp will not visit the shaman when located in, in the traditional medicine center for fear of ridicule and suspicion that they may not be able to go to the U.S. if they were seen visiting shamans. Maintaining traditional Hmong beliefs and practices was even more challenging when Hmong refugees were resettled in the U.S. Now, there's a lot to say about how the U.S. sponsors and resettles refugees, but I want to focus on a few aspects that had really big repercussions for Hmong refugee Hmong refugees' practice of traditional rituals. First, there was the scatter policy. The scatter policy was a strategy that the U.S. government used that intended to disperse refugees across the country for several reasons. One reason was that the government depended on volunteer sponsors, which in the early years were often congregations. So refugees went, went wherever sponsors were available. More importantly, government and voluntary agencies wanted to prevent welfare dependency and wanted to relocate refugees to communities where they could enter the workforce quickly. They also hoped that by dispersing refugees, they would facilitate cultural assimilation. They knew that some states and cities were more heavily impacted by the presence of refugees than others, and they hoped that dispersal would also um, distribute the burdens of resettlement and minimize local backlash. John McCarthy of the US Catholic Conference explained his plan for dispersing Southeast Asian refugees in a congressional hearing in May 1975. And he said, we are going to work our darndest that these communities are scattered throughout the land, not to isolate these people, but in turn, not to affect our economy our socioeconomic development, the community life, or anything else. These are beautiful people. We hope to settle them in a beautiful way. To which Senator Ted Kennedy said, very nicely expressed. The truth is, it was not so beautiful. The scatter policy broke up families. It deprived Hmong refugees of kin whose active participation in rituals was necessary for the continuation of Hmong traditions. For example, Yang Kai Mua, a Hmong man who resettled initially in Wisconsin, recalled that the separation of family members and the uncertainty if they would ever reunite caused his family to question the feasibility of maintaining Hmong traditions in the US. He recalled, we wish to do these rituals, but in our tradition, you just cannot do on your own. For Yang Kai, the people who would no he would normally turn to for help wedding and funeral rituals were located all around the world. Yang Kai and his wife and children were in Wisconsin. His uncle, who was the leader of the extended family, was in Rhode Island. And other relatives lived in California or remained in Thailand. Yang Kai telephoned the family members resettled in the United States. And because they were uncertain if they would ever be reunited ever again, they made a collective decision to discontinue traditional Hmong rituals. The family leader in Providence led this decision. As Yang Kai explained, he mentioned to us that now, since we come to America, 
Each of us live distant to one another, so we need to change to Christian. Second, the preference system. The preference system caused a ritual crisis by prioritizing younger Hmong refugees for resettlement and leaving behind elders who were experts in Hmong tradition. So what was the preference system? Hmong individuals who had served in the military or who had been employed by the US government during the war in Laos were prioritized for resettlement in the United States. These top priority refugees tended to be younger people who had less knowledge of traditional Hmong rituals. Left behind in the refugee camps were elders who in the Hmong community were people who were the spiritual leaders who had the most ritual expertise. So what happened was that the people who first came to the United States were younger people who didn't know how to conduct the traditional rituals. And um, in the initial years of resettlement, they were unsure what to do. Caesar Nanyang, a Hmong man in Minnesota recalled, back in Laos and in Thailand, we always depended on the elders who know how to do this ritual. Now, when you're alone in a foreign land, and you have nobody to give you the proper way how to conduct the ritual or the tradition, you just don't know what to do or how to do it. In this context, he chose to convert to Catholicism because young men like Caesar Neng Yang were reluctant to attempt to do the traditional rituals with which they had limited knowledge. They believed that making errors in rituals could have severe consequences for Hmong people residing in both the seen and unseen worlds. Wang Kao He, a Hmong pastor, explained, if young people don't spend time learning the old ways exactly, they may call the wrong spirit. They must follow the rules exactly, step by step. When something is done wrong, the bad spirit may punish or curse a family for many generations. This worries people. So here we have another aspect of separating family. Here, the preference system deprived younger Hmong people of ritual experts who stayed back in Thailand for a longer period before they could be reunited in the US. A third aspect that changed Hmong religious life, Hmong people were often resettled in cities, places like St. Paul, where this image was taken. Now, if Hmong people had the choice about where they would live in the United States, many might have chosen settings that were similar to where they had lived in Laos, rural areas with mild climates maybe, where large Hmong families could farm, keep animals, and continue their traditions. But resettlement officials sent Hmong refugees to places where sponsors were available, where jobs were available, and that was often cities. In an urban environment, the elaborate rituals traditionally practiced in rural settings were much more difficult. Hmong refugees lacked access to animals, open space, and moving rituals from outdoor spaces to indoor spaces caused problems. For example, it's much more difficult to conduct a ritual that was meant to be outside in a garage, an apartment building, in an American funeral home, in a hospital room. Some shamans still required live animals to be sacrificed at the ritual site, which was often the home. So Hmong people would sometimes share stories of sneaking pigs or chickens into the basements of their apartment buildings. And simply getting the animals was difficult too. 
Looking back, many Hmong people I interviewed laughingly recalled how they traveled to distant farms, transported livestock in the back of borrowed cars and trucks, and chased down the occasional pig that managed to break free and run loose on highways and city streets. Hmong rituals sometimes caused complicated relationships with neighbors. Smoke from burning paper money prompted 911 calls that would send firefighters to pay unexpected visits to Hmong homes. Hmong ceremonies were also sometimes noisy. Now Tao, a Hmong woman and a shaman in St. Paul recalled, the early 1980s wasn't so easy because of the drumming, the chanting and the noise, it bothered the neighbors. And looking back, uh, she explained that it was actually most convenient when her family happened to live in an apartment in an office building. She said it was the second floor. It was not easy, but the good thing was that it was on top of one of the offices. And during the daytime, the people kind of worked in the office, but at the nighttime, they were all gone. So we didn't have an issue for doing the chanting, the shaman's rituals in the evening. Unfortunately, most Hmong people were not so fortunate to live above an office. Now, refugee policies didn't only undermine traditional Hmong beliefs and practices. They also facilitated the adoption of Christianity by setting up relationships between churches and refugees. And here we can see the American resettlement system producing pressures for religious conformity and change. For many Hmong refugees, contact with Christianity began even before they arrived in the United States. It often began in Laos, but more likely in Thailand in the refugee camps because Christian institutions were critical to the provision of refugee relief. Hmong refugees encountered Christian missionaries, for example, with medical institutions, like what is pictured here, this um, World, uh, World Vision Hospital in Thailand. Truth Young recalled, there was a Catholic church where if you got sick, if you needed a shot, they would give you a shot. Catholic relief services were also present in, in Thailand. In her view, Hmong people saw Christian agencies and missions as just another program there to help, not a religious organization. And Hmong people visited the missions, she said, to go and get free stuff. The association of help with Christianity continued in the United States. And a lot of it has to do with how we do refugee resettlement in the United States. In the United States, uh, there are many voluntary agencies that have contracts with the US government to assist refugees in the initial period and both, as well as in long-term um, resettlement programs. Most of these are affiliated with Christian churches. This graph of resettlement cases in 1981, which is roughly the midpoint of Southeast Asian refugee resettlement, offers a snapshot of the groups that uh, participated in Southeast Asian refugee resettlement. And most Southeast Asian refugees, as you can see from this graph, were resettled by religious agencies, which are represented in the red parts of this graph. Over the course of the last two decades of the 20th century, we also see that religious agencies handle the lion's share of refugee caseloads. Now, this was true also at the local level because the, these voluntary agencies would often partner with congregations to sponsor refugees. Um, this was a way for voluntary agencies to borrow capacity. And for these churches, refugee resettlement was not government work. It was not the delegated work of the Office of Refugee Resettlement or the US State Department. It was a religious ministry that they took on on their own. 
As one church world service flyer said, churches were avenues of God's love for refugees. A lot of these churches said that they wanted to respect the religions of the refugees they encountered, but for many of these churches, they had never encountered a Buddhist person or an animist person. This was completely new to them. Um, and some of them had had experience resettling Muslim refugees from Uganda earlier in the 70s, and they were somewhat informed, but still did so clumsily. So there was one really interesting newspaper article I saw of a, a church in the DC area that resettled a, a family uh, from Uganda that was Muslim. And they said, we know that they need to go see the mosque on Sunday. I was like, oh, close, but not quite. So, so just lots of moments when you can see these churches wanting to respect religious difference and not really quite doing so in a way that was um, fully informed. Ultimately, it didn't matter if the churches believed they were respecting religious, uh, respecting refugees' religions. What really mattered is if the refugees themselves saw if their religions were being respected. So I think one important question worth asking now is how did Hmong refugees view the resettlement efforts of these churches? And here, oral history interviews I did with Hmong refugees are very instructive. Overall, Hmong refugees were very grateful for churches' generosity, and they often spoke very warmly of their sponsors. Timothy Vang, a pastor in Minnesota, said, we were so lucky. The church helped us in everything. His sponsor helped to secure housing, education, employment, and Hmong refugees particularly spoke warmly of the kindness of churches. When asked how his church sponsor helped him most, Yang Kaimua said, the friendship is number one. The church, he said, brought the confidence and the closeness to the community. It was in the context of this closeness that many Hmong refugees adopted Christianity. Hmong refugees frequently attributed their religious change to their sponsorship by Christian churches. Here, Bo Tao, a Hmong woman in St. Paul, offers a conversion story that typifies this narrative. She explained, when we first came, we were sponsored by the churches. So when we arrived here, my parents went to church. Hmong refugees recall that going to church was sometimes not optional. One man, Tianang Vang, recalled, with the churches that sponsored us, we didn't have a choice. They sponsored us, so we came every Sunday. He added, he, the pastor, would just come and put us in his car and took us to church. Just through Hmong stories, it's difficult to know the intentions of the sponsors. They may have wanted to convert Hmong refugees to Christianity. Alternatively, they may have brought refugees to church to introduce them to new friends, build a support network, maybe increase financial giving for members of the congregation whose support was necessary for the resettlement project. It's hard to tell. But these nuances were often lost on the refugees themselves, who often didn't speak much English. Assurances of religious freedom were difficult to communicate through hand gestures and charade games. Hmong refugees themselves didn't even know that maintaining traditional Hmong beliefs and practices was an option. Caesar Nang Yang first realized that he was free to practice traditional Hmong rituals in the US when he studied Roger Williams and Anne Hutchison in high school. He emphasized that Hmong people didn't understand their freedoms when they first arrived. We didn't know the constitution, he said. We didn't know that there's an amendment that allows people to believe what they believe and do what they do. We did not know that. 
In these circumstances, many Hmong refugees chose to adopt Christianity, and their reasons varied. For some, becoming American meant becoming Christian. As William Song explained, at first, when you came here, you want to be like the white people. But for others, adopting Christianity was an act of respect, loyalty, obligation, and gratitude for the churches that helped them. As Kia Vu said, after the church helped us, we decided, the whole family decided, to be baptized. I asked her why, and she explained, because this church has helped us. There is a more complex reason at play here about why Hmong refugees embraced Christianity. Again, federal resettlement policies made it hard to do traditional Hmong rituals. And as a result, Hmong people felt spiritually defenseless. Now, traditionally, Hmong people have believed that spirits can cause mental, spiritual, physical harm. And rituals are instrumental in maintaining good relations with the spirit world and preventing harm. But as I've shown, practicing those rituals was often impossible for Hmong refugees in the US, especially in the early years of resettlement. So many Hmong refugees adopted Christianity because they saw Christianity as an alternative means of managing the spirits that threatened their spiritual and bodily well-being. In their conversion narratives, Hmong people described Christianity as a substitute for when traditional Hmong beliefs and practices were neither feasible nor effective. Hmong families adopted Christianity to ensure spiritual protection, as illustrated by the experiences of the Vang family in St. Paul. Now, when the Vang family first arrived in Minnesota, they needed to set up a household altar called a sukha, which is pictured here. The sukha is one of the most important objects in a Hmong home, and it's central to a household in its rituals. It ensures good fortune and well-being. Dao, one of the Vang daughters, explained that because the household deity will protect your home, protect your children, Hmong families attend to the altar carefully. However, the Vang family couldn't set up an altar in their new home. In Minnesota, Mr. and Mrs. Vang were all alone, away from the elders who were the ex experts in this Hmong ritual. As Pendao explained, they no longer had my grandparents there, so they didn't know how to make it. But without an altar, the family believed that their new house was vulnerable to misfortune and malevolent spirits. And they believed that some form of protection was necessary. Now, the Vang family happened to have been sponsored by a Lutheran church, which provided a solution. During one visit, a church member gave the Vang family a crucifix, which they hung on the living room wall. The Vang family reasoned that Jesus would offer spiritual protection and prevent evil spirits from harming them. In other words, it was a substitute for the altar. Pandao explained, we believe that whether you have Buddha or whatever, you have something to protect your home. And I think Jesus Christ served us well in the few probably days that the cross was up as protection in the home. She saw Christianity as a rational choice for her family or for other Hmong people who felt spiritually vulnerable. It's a resource, she said. You know, which one can protect my family? Who can best serve me? Hmong conversion narratives also emphasize the power of Christianity to heal the sick. Now, traditionally, Hmong people practice shamanism to mediate relations with the spirit world when spiritual problems were the cause of illness. And here's a, an image of a shaman in um, Frogtown, a neighborhood in St. Paul. But Hmong converts approached Christianity with a similar objective. This understanding of Christianity as something that could 
augment or even replace shamanism had a long history reaching back to Laos. For example, Shang Yang's parents became Christian because they were afraid of being sick in Laos. And the causal link between Christianity and well-being was clear to him. After we converted, he said, we were healthier. Hmong Christians who converted in the US also spoke of their decision in terms of sickness and health. And Hmong conversion narratives frequently told of miraculous healing. Mary Herr, for example, believed that after she began to attend church, her eyes started healing, she said. The mercy of God is very strong, she said. He's very powerful. So going to church helps me, gives me the energy, and helps me overcome all my sickness because I've been a very sick person all my life. In this story, religious change occurred not simply because Hmong people believed Christianity ensured health, but because the traditional means of maintaining health, shamanism, and other traditional rituals were difficult, even impossible to do in the United States especially in the early years of resettlement. Without shamans and elders with ritual expertise, adopting Christianity was the best and most immediate option for those who felt ill and spiritually vulnerable. Mao Yang, for example, confessed to being reluctant about becoming Christian, but then wondered what she would do if she or a family member became ill. Who am I going to go get, she said. There's no shamans I could pursue, so I just thought I'd go to church. In this void of ritual knowledge, Hmong refugees looked for alternatives, the most obvious of which was the Christianity of the churches that sponsored them. Cedar Yang explained, when you don't have a shaman to come and cure your family or conduct the ritual in your household, then you are hopeless. You need something to lean on. So the Catholic priest, the church were the ones who rely on, they, they come and pray for you, and they serve as the substitute for the shaman. Shamans were well aware of the fact that Hmong people in the U.S. lacked the ritual knowledge and turned to Christianity as a substitute. Paja Tao, a Hmong shaman in Chicago, chanted about these changes in his own family. Now some of my clansmen come to America. None of them knows how to feed these spirits. They do not know these spirits. All my clansmen change to Christians. As these conversion stories show, Hmong refugees adopted Christianity for a variety of reasons. But experiences among religious change share one common feature, the imprint of American refugee resettlement policies. Their diverse stories were all responses to government resettlement policies that undermined traditional beliefs and practices at the same time they introduced Hmong refugees to Christianity. Government provided spiritually unsettled refugees with a new way. But one thing I want to clarify is that conversion didn't necessarily mean abandoning the old way. Some Hmong people abandoned traditional Hmong beliefs and practices entirely, but more often than not, they continued to do both. As uh, Reverend Bay Wu Benson, who was the first Hmong Lutheran woman to be ordained, um, explained, I'm not one of those Hmong Christians who feel very strongly that I can't participate in a meal where a Hmong ritual, a Hmong shamanistic or traditional ritual has been performed, like a spirit calling ritual or a meal where a shaman has been called to perform a healing ceremony. I don't exclude myself from those rituals and um, from my participation in those ceremonies because I really do believe in a God that's bigger than rules and rituals. The willingness to continue traditional Hmong rituals depended on the, on the denomination. 
And here the kite ceremony, which is the ceremony that involves tying strings around wrists, which you can see here, is a good illustration of this. Conservative Protestants, for example, Hmong Americans who are members of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, saw this ritual as a form of demon worship and forbade it. But Catholic and mainline Protestant, they saw it as a secular, non-religious expression among culture that was positive and good and compatible with Christianity. In fact, the first Hmong American man to be ordained as a Catholic priest had kite ceremonies in his ordination ceremonies, which caused other Hmong Christians in the community to say, can you believe what they're doing at the Catholic church? So this actually caused discussion in the local media and controversy among Hmong Christians. Finally, Hmong refugees often moved back and forth. Uh, they crossed and recrossed religious boundaries as circumstances changed. Maybe they migrated to a new place where there would be a shaman. Maybe they reunited with relatives who offered ritual expertise. Maybe they got married to someone who was of a different religion. The story of Mei Kao Hang is a good illustration. She says, my family, we practiced the traditional ritual, but when we arrived in America, we were sponsored by Lutheran churches. We were baptized to become Lutheran. But when I was 12 years old, my dad married a second wife and it seemed like he was ashamed or something. But after that, we stopped going to church. My dad said it was because my grandpa had come and because my grandpa did not approve of us practicing the new religion. And he wanted us to go back and practice our traditional religion. So when I was 12 years old, up until I got married, we practiced shamanism. So you can say I do both. I know both, but now that I'm married to my husband and he is a Lutheran, so I've changed. I have to practice Christianity. But I believe in the traditional religion as well as the new religion. So there's a lot of um, combination and here we see a longer tradition of approaching beliefs and practices in a very additive way. I'd like to conclude now with a couple of alternative endings. I've outlined some of the policies that set up religious changes in the United States um, for Hmong refugees. But I wanna point out a couple different examples to suggest that things could have turned out differently if Hmong refugees had been in a different situation. My point is this, it wasn't inevitable that Hmong refugees would experience religious change. As I mentioned briefly earlier, one of the main challenges for Hmong people was that their traditions were not immediately legible or recognizable to American sponsors as a religion. So my question initially was, what would have happened if Hmong refugees had a more legible religion? And here it's useful to compare Hmong experiences with those of Vietnamese Buddhist refugees. Now Vietnamese refugees were resettled around the same time that Hmong refugees were, but the major difference is that Vietnamese refugees had religions that were seen as religions. They were Catholic largely or Buddhist. The interesting thing is to see all of the different ways that the government accommodated the Buddhism of Vietnamese refugees. The government provided chaplains for Vietnamese Buddhist refugees in the refugee camps. They created the Indo-Chinese Refugee Religious Program administered by the US Army. They had um, all sorts of programs to reduce Vietnamese fear of proselytizing by Christians. Um, one of the biggest concerns among the, the US government was that Vietnamese refugees were not accepting offers to resettle outside of the military run refugee camps because they were concerned that they would not be able to continue 
being Buddhist if they were sponsored by a Christian church. So there are all of these efforts by the U.S. Army and the government to assuage uh, and to address their fears and tell the story of religious freedom, as they said. Christian voluntary agencies and sponsoring churches also actively supported the religious lives of Vietnamese Buddhists. Voluntary ed agencies educated churches about Buddhism. Church sponsors connected Vietnamese refugees with Buddhist leaders and organizations. And in Oregon, for example, two churches arranged for a Buddhist monk to fly in and visit refugee families. They created spaces for refugees to worship, as was the case in Columbus, Ohio, where Catholic charities helped establish a Buddhist temple. So very active efforts to support the Buddhism of Vietnamese refugees. We do not see something similar for Hmong refugees. A second question I asked is, what if Hmong refugees had been resettled in a situation where the US government or the government did not rely so heavily on religious institutions to do the work of resettlement? And here, the example of Australia is very instructive. The Australian government doesn't use Christian agencies to resettle refugees. It's by and large a government program. The Hmong anthropologist Gary Yadley explained that in the Australian system, Hmong refugees didn't encounter people who may influence them to doubt their traditional beliefs and practice or embrace a set of new beliefs. As he put it, uh, as a result, fewer Hmong Australians adopted Christianity than did their Hmong American counterparts. Moreover, the Australian government had an explicit commitment to multiculturalism. And it is through this policy of multiculturalism that they actively supported traditional Hmong practices. Now, like Hmong Americans, Hmong Australians didn't have enough ritual experts. Citing the policy of multiculturalism, the Hmong worked with the Australian government to create the cultural lobby program. This was a government program that brought Hmong ritual experts, including shamans, from the refugee camps in Thailand. It was a modest but effective effort and provided Hmong people with enough practitioners to serve the community. As the comparison with Australia illustrates, Hmong religious change in the US was not the natural consequence of living in a Christian country. Hmong struggles were very much a product of government resettlement policies in Australia where policies were different religious outcomes were also different. I'd like to conclude with a few thoughts about why the story matters. The story of Hmong refugee resettlement and religious change is significant for several reasons. Um, and in the discussion, I'll, I'll gladly take questions about the significance of my book as it relates to refugee policy, race and religion in America, um, histories of domestic and overseas missionary work and more. Um, but for now, let me just highlight th three main points about the material I discussed today. The first is a historiographical intervention. It's very common for scholars and also public commentators to describe American religious life as a free market. Historians have argued that it's because of disestablishment and it's this free market that American religious life has flourished. But by exposing how resettlement policies shape the religious trajectory among people, I challenge the common characterization of American religious life as free and competitive. I show that the state intervenes in religious life often in subtle and unanticipated ways, and most potently in the lives of people like the Hmong whose religions are on the margins. Through a variety of legal, political, and administrative instruments, governments have a direct impact on religious beliefs and practices. 
The state can subsidize religious missions, structure how religious institutions operate, regulate religious practices, suppress some religious options, and promote others. And all of these forces were at work in the case among refugee resettlement. Even in a nation with a constitutional commitment to disestablishment, the state structures the putatively free religious marketplace in a way that is far from neutral. The second intervention concerns public policy. As Hmong experiences indicate, there are religious consequences to our system of public-private church-state governance. Hmong stories show the possibilities and perils that arise when the sacred and the state overlap. And this study offers a cautionary tale about delegating government work to religious institutions in a multi-religious society. Now, government funding for faith-based organizations has generated vigorous debate in the past couple decades. In fact, that is the question that first caused me to take up this, this research project in the first place. Um, efforts to provide public support for faith-based drug, prison, and education programs have been controversial. And as Americans have debated these programs and any other overlap of government and religion, the discussion has largely focused on the religious need freedoms of Christian service providers. But I think we need to think about the issue from the other end focusing on the experiences of non-Christian service recipients rather than Christian service providers. And considering the viewpoint of religious minorities shows that the outsourcing of the work of resettlement to religious organizations offers governments practical advantages, but at a cost. Finally, the story among resettlement and religious change challenges us to think more critically about how we envision and realize aspirations of religious freedom and pluralism. As a prescription for managing a multi-religious society, religious pluralism is alluring. But Hmong experiences offer us an important lesson, that ideals of religious pluralism are difficult to put into practice. Government officials, voluntary agencies, individual church volunteers, they all made genuine efforts to respect religious beliefs and practices of refugees. And to do so for them was more than a legal imperative, more than a social imperative expectation. It was an American duty and a sacred obligation. But faced with Hmong refugees who practice ancestor worship and shamanism, Christian resettlement workers found themselves engaged in interreligious encounters for which they were woefully unprepared. And practicing religious pluralism in their refugee service was marked by uncertainty, experimentation, and often error. Now more than ever, Americans need to figure out how to live peacefully with each other across boundaries of religious difference. But even with the best intentions, pluralism is easier said than done. And our contemporary approach, like that of Christian resettlement workers, is often flawed. The trouble is due, in part, to the enduring debate about what gets to count as religion. Who gets to enjoy equal rights, respect, and resources? We tend to value religions that conform to a Christian-centric definition of religion. We're less likely to accommodate religious difference if a group falls outside those norms. This issue is relevant to all sorts of current crises. For most Americans, it's easy to recognize Muslims praying on campus as legitimately religious people who deserve respect and accommodation. It's harder for most Americans to recognize Native Americans at Standing Rock protesting the disturbance of sacred land as legitimately religious people who also deserve respect and accommodation. Ultimately, a meaningful approach to pluralism demands that Americans have an honest assessment of the unequal relations of power that shape how we manage our multi-religious society. 
Implicit in many visions of pluralism is the fiction that diverse American religions are equal beneficiaries of the First Amendment and operate on an equal playing field, but they do not. Christians and animists don't even get to play the same game. Hmong stories remind us of the need to engage in religious pluralism with a clear-eyed understanding of how religion reflects and reproduces power and inequality in America today. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.